So I grew up in Illinois, and in Illinois, uh, the day you turned 16, you were able to go and take your driving test and get your license. And I did that on my 16th birthday, and fortunately, I passed, which was a miracle. I had saved up some money, and so I bought a 1974 Canary Yellow Monte Carlo. And it looked nothing like this. It was more rust than it was yellow. It actually had the, the, uh, the white covering that mostly was torn off. I had bought it from a mechanic friend of my parents for $350. And it smelled like and it ran like a $350 car. It leaked, so it had that musty smell to it. But I love that car, and this all six months that I was able to drive it before it mercifully died of engine failure. Getting my license and having that car was really my first taste of independence. I no longer had to be dependent on my parents to get me places, and it set me on a journey of other experiences with independence. I went away to college, experience a little more independence. My wife and I got married after our sophomore year and moved off of campus and experienced more independence from the rules of campus. And then we moved to an entirely different city, further away from family, and even experienced more. It was exciting and new and energizing. We we love our independence. We have a, a declaration and a celebration of independence. And culturally, independence has become a value for us. It's something that we desire, it's something that we respect, and it's even something that we strive toward. Why is this? I, I think it's because we equate independence with freedom. Freedom from being controlled by the will of another or freedom from being told what to do and freedom to live the way we want according to our own rules. And our cultural drive and desire for independence is one of the reasons I think that we wrestle with putting our faith in Jesus. Remember, faith is who or what we're putting our trust in and independence demands that we put our trust in ourselves, in our own abilities, in our own way of doing things, because this is where we think that we will experience freedom. The paradox of the message of the gospel is that true freedom is not found in our independence and doing things on our own and usually for ourselves, but rather true freedom is actually found when we are completely dependent on God. We've been reading through this letter that was written almost two millennia ago by the half-brother of Jesus, a man named James, and he was writing to some of the first Jesus followers, and he's trying to get them, and I think he's trying to get us to understand what life is all about when it comes to having a real faith 
in Jesus. And in the portion of the letter we're going to read together this morning, it identifies two key areas of our lives where we sometimes try and find our freedom through our independence. How we plan for the future and where we find our peace and security. So first thing he's going to address how we plan. He says this, we're going to be in James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. The words are on the screen. He says, come now. This is kind of our way today. If we were trans, like if we were speaking this day, we'd be like, come on. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. Come on. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and try to make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. James isn't against planning for the future. He isn't saying all plans are bad or wrong or you should just go through life without a plan. But he is speaking about how we plan, or more specifically, who we involve in our planning. There's a wise way to plan, and there's a naive or a foolish way to plan. Solomon, who we read about in the Old Testament, and who was the wisest and one of the wealthiest people ever to live, wrote one of the, one of the books that we see in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. And get this, when Solomon's writing this, Solomon is like not just wise and not just like wealthy, but he's got a lot of power. I mean, he's king of Israel. His word is law. But he writes a lot about planning. Proverbs 16.1, he says this, The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.3 Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In each of these Proverbs, Solomon is saying, it's wise to recognize that God has a significant part in planning for the future, that we should seek him. That we should know that God is the one who's in control. And James is saying the exact same thing here. He says, making plans for our future independently without seeking God or acknowledging his control or seeking his direction is at the very least naive. It's naive for us to think that we can control what happens through our planning. In other words... If we have this great plan, we can make this happen. That's what he's talking about. Hey, if we just go to this city and we spend enough time there, we're going to make a lot of money. Vacations are an example of this for me. I always have this like ideal in my head when we plan a vacation. 
And I don't know about you, but that ideal seldom comes to pass. Like there's delays in the travel, the weather never cooperates, it's far more crowded than I thought in my head it would be, and I get irritated and frustrated and even angry, and I end up coming back more exhausted than when I left. What happens to us when we don't allow God to guide our plans for the future, one of two things, we either become captured in our pride because we think we've made something happen and we no longer need anyone else like God. That's what he's talking about here with we boast in our arrogance or we will continually be disappointed and disillusioned because things don't turn out the way we expected. The outcome doesn't meet up to our expectations. And sometimes when that happens, we put our disappointment on God. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And James tells us why it's wise to seek God's direction for our future. He says this, he says, our lives, like in the scheme of eternity, our lives are just like a mist. Like we are here and then we are gone. But God sees everything. He sees the whole picture. He is in control. We only know what's right in front of us. Have you ever like walked on a trail in like really, really dense fog where you can't see like except for the next step that you take in front of you? That's how far you and I know the future. We can only see the moment that we are living in. As much as we, like, we think that we like to know what the future holds, we simply don't. That's what he says in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And implied in that is this idea that you don't know, I don't know what tomorrow might bring, but there is somebody who does. God is not bound by the limitations of time like we are. He knows what the future holds. He lives outside of time. And so why wouldn't we turn to him and seek him for our future direction? How do we do this? Well, here's, here's what we shouldn't do. But oftentimes what I find myself doing, and maybe you can relate to this. I come to God and say, God, I'm going to include you in my plan. Here's my plan. Would you bless it? Sometimes we do this with our romantic relationships that we enter to. God, here is the person I'm interested to. I want you to bless this relationship. Sometimes we do this with the job opportunities that we are given. God, I really want to advance in this or I want to shift this. Would you just bless whatever direction I had? And sometimes we do this with our significant purchases, even though they may lead us further and further in debt. And then we say, Lord, bless my mess. It's like saying, God, I've filled in all the details. Now I want you just to sign off on the bottom. I've done this so many times in my life and in my ministry, thinking that somehow this was the way that you get God involved in planning for the future. But rather than that, this is what it should look like. We should take a blank piece of paper, sign our name to the bottom, and say, God, you fill this in. 
Here's how we seek God first. Before, let me say it again, before we make a decision, spend time talking to him about it and listening to him, praying with him. Bring your future to God. Ask and seek him first. This may be as simple as this prayer. God, show me what you want me to do. Maybe that's where you start your day. Maybe that's a prayer that you continue to pray all day. God, show me what you want me to do. And then, wait. This is the part that's tough. Because we live in a time where we demand or expect an instant response, right? If I send a text out to somebody, I have a timetable in my mind where I want a response back from them. If I shoot somebody an email, if I make a phone call, I expect within a certain amount of time. And we put that expectation on God. It's like, God, I asked you 10 minutes ago for you to respond to this, and here I sit waiting. And we see example after example in Scripture where God doesn't respond right away. I think of Abraham and Sarah, who we've talked about several different times, and God makes this promise of the son that's going to come, and 25 years later, Isaac's born. He tells the Israelites as they're being exiled into Babylon, he says, you know what? I have plans for your future. In that famous passage that we like to repeat in Jeremiah, plan to protect you and not to harm you. Seventy years later, they return from exile. It may not be years, but it may be days, it may be weeks, or it may be months. But in the meantime, we wait. Sometimes God confirms his direction to the counsel of others, or we ask others, and here's my advice with this. We don't just ask anyone. We ask people who have been walking with Jesus for a while, who have matured in their faith, who have endured some stuff. We seek that kind of counsel. Proverbs 15.22 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. God will always give us an answer, and sometimes it's not always the answer we want. Sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is not now, and sometimes the answer is wait. But God always gives us an answer. We must be sure we are responding to God's direction and not just our own desire. We experience true freedom when we are completely dependent on God for our future. Knowing that He's good, that He's in control, His ways and His timing are always right. They're always perfect. Putting our trust in Him, not in ourselves. When we do this, we'll experience true freedom. We experience true freedom because we know of the goodness of God. We know of the perfection of His timing and His will. We no longer have to fear. We no longer have to worry. And we certainly do not have to be caught up in our pride because it's Him who's doing it anyway. Next, what James 
says, he looks at the second way that we try to find our independence and freedom. In James chapter one verses, or chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, it says this. Come on now. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is where James gets real. <laughs> your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence Evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Doesn't sound pleasant. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, it's important to understand what James is not saying here. He's not saying having things or being wealthy in and of itself is bad or wrong. What he is speaking against is when we try to find our peace and security in the things that we acquire and accumulate. When we try to be independent and self-reliant and seek freedom in our stuff. It's not bad or wrong to be prepared for retirement and there will likely be a time when each of us will be unable to earn a paycheck. But if having enough becomes the place where we try to find our sense of peace and security then we are setting ourselves up for a lifetime of worry and disappointment, not freedom. Things break, they stop working, markets change, economies tank, stuff decays and needs to be replaced. Everything tries to drain what we try to reserve for ourselves. It's like each of us have this bucket. And our buckets all come in different sizes, depending on what we have. And no matter how much we try to fill our buckets, the circumstances of life, they just come and they just drill holes in our buckets. Some of those are massive holes. Some of those are small pinpricks. But everything that we experience in life tries to drain our buckets. Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Treasures are those things that are valuable to us or sometimes are the things that we find our value in. It's those things that we obsess over and they have our attention. It's what we spend time accumulating or pursuing. It's our prides and joys in our lives. It's what we want others to see that we have. What we often think is, if I only have enough, then I can experience freedom to do what I want to do, to live the way I want, to be able to rest and relax and live the good life. 
But here's the problem with this mindset. If your enough is found in what you possess, you will never have enough. Ecclesiastes, again, written by Solomon 5, 10. And this is, again, written by a guy who had everything. He says this, for those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. If this is our mindset, then the things we possess begin to possess us. We become enslaved to them. We become we need to constantly try to protect them. Americans every year spend $21 billion to protect their stuff. And not only this, but we are a new and improved, new and improved culture. There's always something newer and better and shinier that we have to have. Pursuing enough in order to find our peace and security can ultimately lead us into greed. I like this definition of greed. It's greed is ruthless, is, is ruthless self-seeking and an arrogant assumption that others and things exist for our own benefit. Let me say that again. Greed is, a, is ruthless self-seeking and an arrogant assumption that others and things exist for one's own benefit. Jesus tells a parable that illustrates this idea of arrogant assumption in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. He says this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And then he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man's arrogant assumption, his greed, led him to pursue security in his bigger barns. And all that he had accumulated for himself. And James warns against greed, assuming others exist just for ourselves. He uses his example of laborers, day laborers, who would work for wealthy landowners. And in that culture, in that day, Day laborers got paid at the end of the day, and it was the money that they used to literally buy food for their tables at night. They lived day to day counting on that money. And what some landowners would do is they would withhold that money and not pay them till the next day to make sure that they would show up to work so that they could continue to harvest. And sometimes in our pursuit of peace and Security through the accumulation of wealth comes at a cost to others. Maybe we don't outright cheat someone, but we can do that at the expense of others. We can do it at the expense of the relationship with our spouse, or we could do it at the expense of the relationship with our kids, or we can do it at the expense of the relationship with friends. 
We can do it at the expense of the relationship with our coworkers when we just claw and fight to get ahead. Greed can drive us to do some pretty awful things. We can never find true peace and security in the pursuit of having enough wealth. There's only one person where we can find our enough, and that's Jesus. It sounds super Sunday schooly, but it's true. He is the treasure that we all long for. Until we realize that Jesus is our, our enough, that he is the one who can bring us the peace and security we are trying to find in the accumulation of stuff, we will always chase the wind. Only Jesus meets us in our brokenness. Only Jesus meets us in our sin and our guilt and our shame. And he offers us a way to be restored back to a relationship with God. Jesus did this through his willing death on a cross where he paid the price for our sin. And then he rose from the dead and he conquered death so that we can have life with him forever. Our two biggest enemies, sin and death, were conquered by him. And he freely offers himself as the way back to God. And all we have to do is put our faith in him, put our trust in him fully and completely there's nothing we can do to earn this, and there's certainly nothing that we have done that deserves this. All we can do is accept it. And when we accept Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, God puts his spirit inside us, and he begins to make us new. He begins to restore what sin has damaged in our lives, and he begins to make us more and more like Jesus. And to continue to depend more and more on him in every aspect of our lives. We live like Jesus is enough. Often the way we view and treat our relationship with Jesus is we invite him into our lives. We make Jesus a part of our lives. What this often looks like is we will turn to Jesus when we need him or when it's convenient, when he fits into our schedule or when we find ourselves in a bind. But, and then meanwhile, what we do is we build these compartments with our lives. We have our church life, we have our home life, and we have our work life. And we, depending on which compartment of our life we're in, we behave differently. We act differently. We make different decisions in each of these compartments, but that's not what faith in Jesus is all about. Jesus's invitation is for us to follow him, for us to put our faith in him, to trust him with everything. Rather than us inviting Jesus into our lives, his invitation is for us to become part of his life. It's not about bringing Jesus into our story. It's about us becoming a part of his story. John 15, 5, these are Jesus' words. He says this, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him 
He it is that bears much fruit from apart from me. You can do nothing. Abiding in Jesus means we are continually and daily surrendering and submitting to His will, His way, and His voice. We are living dependently on Him. We follow Him. We don't bring Him along with us. It's a process. It's a journey that He calls us to. It doesn't happen overnight. Often it's one step forward following Jesus and two steps backwards following ourselves. It's why we need one another. It's so easy for us to listen to the wrong voice, especially our own. We need one another to remind us where or better who our freedom is found in. My prayer for all of this, myself included, both individually and as a church family, is that we will continue to move closer and closer to a complete dependence on Jesus. That we will know Him, not know about Him, but that we will know Him that we will trust Him with all of our lives, every part of our life. That we will live lives surrendered to Him so that we can experience the freedom that comes from this. This is not a message that's designed to hit us over the head and beat us up with guilt. It's so that we can be free. <laughs> we can continue to share others in our lives, the amazing grace, the amazing freedom, and the amazing peace that can only be found in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the fact that, that You are enough. Father, forgive us for the time that we start to depend on ourselves, that we try to find our, our independence and our freedom in other things, but Father, Remind us each day that you are the one who guides our paths, that you are the one that we can trust for all things in our lives. And, and Father, would you help us when we're weak just to continue to surrender and submit to what you want us to do. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.